I'm not big on, you know, I, I pay my taxes, but I'm not big on paying by April 15th. I just, it's no big deal to me, you know, okay. Uh, so I'll go long. Well, guess what? I, I, I got, just got my stimulus check, which I wasn't even expecting. I wasn't looking for it, wasn't expecting it. And in the mail yesterday, I opened, what's this right here from the government? Oh, my goodness, what is it? Open it up, it's a stimulus check. And Rini's like, woo, hallelujah. <laughs> and I said, why don't we just put that over here and we'll set it aside and ask the Lord how he wants us to use it. And she said, that sounds good. So we did. Today she texted me and said, honey, I, I, I need to remind you, I know we talked a while back, but I've got to have that dental work done and it's $1,700. And uh, so uh, it's coming up next Monday. And so I said, hallelujah. I said, we don't even have to go into our banking account. We've got the money right there. And she was like, man, we, you know, we got this money and now we got to use it. I said, are you kidding? The Bible says that God, my God, shall supply all my needs according to his riches in glory. You had a dental need, God provided right there on the spot. He knew exactly when to bring that money in. Isn't that awesome? See, that's, there are so many times in the course of one day when we could let out a good hallelujah. In fact, let's just do that right now. I want you on the count of three to let out a good hallelujah. First, think about, what are you thankful for? Maybe it's your salvation. Maybe God today did something in your life, or this week something has happened. So let's, let's give the Lord a shout tonight, okay? The Bible says, clap your hands, all ye peoples, Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. So all you Presbyterians, you need to loosen up tonight. So count of three, we're going to do a hallelujah, okay? One, two, three. Hallelujah! Praise God. Amen. <laughs> That's great. And those of you who are watching from home, I hope you did the same. Uh, hopefully the kids weren't in bed yet, but uh, yeah, it's, there's something beautiful about that. Uh, Salvation, the latter part of verse 1, salvation, we haven't even got through verse 1 yet. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. If you remember our study in chapter 18, which was two weeks ago, Babylon's friends mourned for her when the business, the commerce of the world literally completely fell apart all those merchants, all those, those ship captains who were sending and trading uh, supplies and, 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 and all of that, their businesses went down the tubes. They mourned over the, the, the commerce system of the world that fell apart. Well, I want to tell you something. Here, God is now celebrating their mourning. He's celebrating that, that system, that, that worldly system has fallen apart. And in heaven, all the angelic hosts, all the, the multitudes, they were celebrating this. Verse 2, For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. Remember now, um, the word immorality here has more of a sensual, and when I say sensual, immediately many of us think sexual. But sensual simply means the, the senses. It appeals to all the senses. It's not just sexuality. 
And that's what the commerce system does. In our day, that's what it does. What does an advertisement do? It appeals to your senses. That's why you purchase whatever it is you're going to buy, because it's appealing to you. And people have placed their hope in that nonsense. And, and, and so here in this passage, it says, and, and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah! What's happening here is that there's an all-out, uninterrupted worship service in heaven. That's what's happening right here. And the focus of the worship is specifically on the mighty works of God, namely His great work of righteous judgment that He has and is bringing to the earth. He has judged the false prostitute, the commerce system, the false religious system of the world, and He has brought them down. And they are celebrating in heaven over it. And, by the, and again, if the premillennial view holds weight, you will be there. This, you're actually reading what you're going to be doing. God's giving you an insight. It's an apocalypsis in the Greek. It's a revealing to you what you will be doing at this time in the end. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, who, you who fear Him, small and great. Before you jump to the conclusion that that voice is God's voice, remember from our earlier study, back when we studied the, the throne room of God, that that's a temple. Remember, we learned that there were angels who ministered in the presence of God. It's more likely that this is one of those angels who's speaking from the throne, not sitting on the throne. Remember, there were, we studied the throne, what's in front of the, the throne, what's around the throne, what's behind the throne. All of, and it's, it's angels and it's those who are ministering to the Lord. So that's probably, that's probably uh, who it is. Then I heard, verse 6, what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! Four times in this chapter we see the word hallelujah and it's never used in, a, in the entire New Testament. For the Lord our God, why are they praising the Lord? For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So the angel is giving John instruction as he's writing down this wonderful vision that he has and the words that he's hearing. And the angel is instructing him, you need to write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. By the way, that invitation went out to everybody. But only a few reserved a seat at the table. And the only way to reserve a seat at the table is to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. 
and receive him and the gospel. And everyone else who was invited, they will be invited now to another supper, another dinner. It is the feast of the fowl. As all the birds on the earth, types of birds in that region where the Armageddon is taking place, are going to feast on the flesh of everyone who rejected Christ, both great and small. It says in verse uh, 8, It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Now let's go back and look at the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. In heaven, as everyone is worshiping, the height of praise is going on. It is, it is a cataclysmic experience. The entire Bible is being summed up as Christ is about to return. Every prophecy, if it is a prophecy of God, always points you back to Messiah in some way, shape, or form. And this is the fulfillment, the final fulfillment. And so there's this incredible eruption of worship in the presence of God. Now, I want you to remember uh, that in this moment, everyone in heaven is shouting hallelujah. Here on this earth, for some odd reason, some believers have it that they just need to have this quiet worship experience and that there's not a place to raise their voice, not a place to show expression to their God. But God didn't just save your, your inner being. Your whole body ought to get in on it. And you ought to be able to worship God expressively. It's okay to do that. What you don't want to do is start with feelings in your worship. You start with what you know about God, and it carries you into your emotion. And then your emotion can get involved. And I've been in some worship environments where it was very somber and very quiet and very meaningful. And then there's other times where as I came into that worship, and maybe I came in in a somber mood, but as this worship, the songs, the words began to speak to my spirit, all of a sudden I found my voice rising. I found my arms going up just with exalt, wanting to exalt my Savior and my Lord. That, that, that should be the case for every believer, that you're not pigeonholed into one type or posture of worship. Some of, I've heard people say, well, that's just my family. This is how we've always done it. That's the way my dad did it. Well, whoop-dee-doo. You don't have to follow your dad. You follow that daddy. And you put him first and foremost and let your being get excited about the Lord. Too often, worship becomes more of a self-indulgent focus on our feelings because we're in our own moment rather than sharing this wonderful moment with a crowd. In heaven, there's not having a quiet moment. They're not having a private moment. 
They are all together in this unadulterated worship of God. Uh, we can even get to a place where all expression is lost in our attempt to be contemplative or to be holy. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if that's all it ever is, I wonder if you're truly getting the deeper context of the words that you're reading or that you're singing. Because the more you hear truth, the more you should, ex should excite you. It should fill you. It should do something to you. And, and, and God wants it to do something to us. The Scripture says, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise Him. And, and that's something that uh, we all need to think about because some of us have grown up in a certain setting and we've always felt that it was more of a somber, quiet, private moment. And there are those, but there is also the other. And you ought to experience both of them when they're led by what you know about God. That's the key. And while there is something precious and irreplaceable about quiet times alone with God, there's something absolutely thrilling to worship as a whole corporate body together. Amen? Coming before God with a sincere enthusiasm. While worship doesn't begin with our feelings or expressions, it can quickly get there when we are caught up in the wonder of the works of God. And that's why they're worshiping God so violently in heaven. Because they're thinking of the good deeds, the things that He has done, the righteous judgment that He has executed and is about to execute for the last time. Psalm 24, verse 7. Let me give you, let's just take a moment and let's, let's, let's stay on this subject of worship. And let's just go into the Old Testament where David himself, this wonderful psalm, Psalm 24. And let's pick it up and let's read about four verses beginning at verse 7. David said, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Again, what are they worshiping over? The greatness of God, the works of God. Verse 9, Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is a very interesting passage because it has a dual meaning, a dual purpose. Okay, first, it's a messianic prophecy calling upon Jerusalem to welcome the Messiah when He comes. And they did as He came into the city. But it's more than that. Originally, tradition says that the original audience of this psalm heard these words while being encouraged to welcome the Ark of the Covenant's return to Jerusalem. Now, turn in your Bible, if you will, follow with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Let's pick up at verse 16. 2 Samuel 6, 16. This is the story of the ark being hauled by oxen carts and how uh, uh, one of the Kohathites, the Kohathites were the priests out of the Levitical tribe, but they were specifically given the assignment of preparing the utensils, the instruments of the temple to be hauled, to be 
transported. And that was their role. And so uh, Uzziah was the one that this is actually going to talk about. We're not going to go into that. But I want you to see in chapter 6, verse 16, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Now, when you just read that on the surface, it looks like they're bringing in the ark into Jerusalem through the city gates. And David is leaping and jumping and dancing. But nobody else is. And Michael looks down and she is kind of like, oh my goodness, he's making a scene. He's embarrassing our family, blah, 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 blah. And, and it's hard to get the full picture when you see that. You actually have to go back to when they were actually traveling towards Jerusalem when Uzziah touched the ark and was stricken dead. Prior to him striking it or, or, or touching it and being stricken dead, uh, it says in verse 1 of chapter 6, 2 Samuel, Chapter 6, verse 1, it gives us the original intent of King David with the ark, the excitement of the ark. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel. Listen now, 30,000 were coming with him to Jerusalem to deliver the ark of God, the presence of God in, in the holy city. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from the, there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. So I want you to notice here, this is very fascinating to me. David has 30,000 coming up. He's got people playing instruments. He is out there doing the same thing that later Michael would, would complain about. But he is dancing before the Lord, so excited. They're all dancing. They've got the presence of God with them. They're excited about that. Now, that, that was all, uh, that all came to a, to a, a, a abrupt stop when U, Uzziah touched the ark and was stricken dead because God always said, I must be treated as holy. So you can dance before me because you're excited about me. But when I have given the law that says, don't ever touch the ark, don't ever touch my presence, and you do it, you end up like Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, who died on the spot as they were lighting incense that were unholy before the Lord. And the same is happening there. But the point of this is that when David was bringing up the ark into the city, as he came to the city gates, you just get this sense that the same thing was happening. He had assembled the people. The people knew he was coming with the ark. And they're all excited. People are on the city wall. They're looking over the wall. People are at the gate entry. Others are standing probably just outside the gate. And then you've got all these instruments and you've got all these people that are the, these soldiers that are coming up with the ark and they're shouting and they're giving hallelujahs and all this is going on. And that's what Micah didn't like about it. That David was out there like he's almost naked. He wasn't naked. But she didn't like that he was just going all out for God in front of people like that. So, but I want you to get the picture here. 
because some scholars believe that this passage in Psalm 24 is actually the, the reading and the response of worship as the ark was coming in to, the, to Jerusalem. So let's look at it again. The chorus would go something like this. As they were bringing up the ark, there were probably those in the choir coming up with the ark who began to, to call out and sing, Lift up your heads, O gates, the gates of the city. Lift, be lifted up, O ancient doors, the doors of the city, that the King of glory may come in. And then they would say, Who is the King of glory? And then you would have this response that came from the people who were on the city wall, at the gate, outside the gate, as they're coming up, and their response was, The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. And then those voices bringing up the ark said, Lift up your heads, O gates, lift up them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? And the people responded again, The Lord of hosts, He is the King of glory. My, my, my. Woo! You talk about a moment. Don't you wish you could be there for that, if that's what happened? It's, I'm not saying it's absolute definite. It's, it's plausible. Uh, and many scholars believe that's exactly what happened. I know that uh, Rini and I traveled out to, Cal to, to, to Chicago uh, to visit Lauren and Graham, my daughter, our daughter, and her husband, and their children. And this was uh, probably about three years, four years ago. And uh, we wanted to attend church with them. They attend Glen Ellen Bible Church. But on that Sunday, they said, we're going to go over to uh, the Episcopal Church. And uh, they, they said they do something that is so spectacular, so moving, and it just, it's a meaningful worship experience. And I said, well, I'm all in. Let's do it. So we go to this, this Episcopal Church that is huge. It's big. And it's a modern building, and it's just loaded with people. Most of them were young people. I'm talking probably in the room, uh, I'd say 2,000, maybe more. And most were young people, young families. And it was Palm Sunday. And, and so they came out and the father, that's what they call their guy, you know, the father. Don't ever call me father. Um, and but while you're at it, stay away from reverend too. Uh, only one to be revered is God, not, not any man. But anyway, uh, so he comes up and they do their thing, and it's more liturgical, right? And, and they go about 10 minutes doing these readings and whatever, and then this person comes to the mic and says, now we're going to exit the building, all of us, go down to the street, and, um, and we're going to start the procession with the palm branches. And so we go outside, and on our way out, they gave everybody a palm branch, and we go down to the street, both sides of the street, and at the end of the street, coming up, where the people are lined along the side of the street, probably back a block, uh, the, the musicians started singing worship songs and started walking up the street. And as you, they would come past you, you would fall in behind them. We were towards the end. As they came by us, there's this long uh, line of people coming up with waving their palm branches. And I just thought, man, I, I'm getting chills right now. It was one of those moments, one of those hallelujah moments. And then we all kept going and we followed in line towards the back, uh, probably the last you know, 50 people. We were in the back and we come in back into this, 
this large open room that they have their worship service in. And when we came through the doors into this room, woo! Everybody waving their palm branches in an all-out praise and worship of Jesus, singing Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And I'm telling you, it's one of those moments I'll never forget. And it happened right there in an Episcopal church. <laughs> I can worship anywhere where God's presence is found. And it doesn't mean that they have to do it my way. They don't have to sing my songs. It's what they're saying. What are the words? Are they truly lifting up the great works of God? And, and that's what we see here. It's just a beautiful, beautiful thing as they came in. Well, Matthew 21, verse 1 through 11 offers a preview of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem at His first coming. And here in Revelation 19, we see the heavenly host and the great multitude working up to His second coming. They're about ready to, he's about ready to, to come back for the second time, and they are so pumped up about it. He's not just entering Jerusalem this time like he did the first time. Now he's coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords over the entire earth, over the entire world. The point is we shouldn't worship God in a half-hearted way as if we're a, giving some kind of, a, again, a perfunctory duty. It's not a routine. Worship is never a routine, ever. doesn't mean that you don't repeat things, but when you repeat them, they still have the same meaning because you're thinking about what you're repeating. You don't just say the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven. That's not what it's about. It's about paying attention to the words that you've memorized and that you've repeated every day. Not because the Bible tells you to repeat it every day, but because you just see the significant value in those words of Christ to the disciples of how to pray. And you, you, you say them with meaning. You worship the same way. Mechanical worship just won't do it. Why? Because it's worthless. It has to come from your heart. It has to start in your mind. You are changed by what you know about God not just by what you feel about God. Because if it's all about what you feel about God, there's going to be days you don't feel it. So does that mean you don't worship? You worship every day. Because whether you have a good day or a bad day, God is on the throne. He is your God. Amen? Now, why were they worshiping so loudly and expressively in heaven? There were four things that were happening. I think these four things are in the text, and I think they certainly contribute to why they were wor worshiping so loudly and expressively. Okay, number one, because the power of God had just conquered all evil. <laughs> I mean, all evil has just been vanquished from the world. That's worth worshiping over. Amen? Can you imagine this world with no evil? Well, you better because you're going to experience it. Secondly, because the Lord God reigns. That's found in verses 4 through 6. Uh, the, 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 the conquering of all evil is verses 1 through 3 of chapter 19. The Lord God reigns is verses 4 through 6. Another reason 
is because the marriage of the Lamb has come. The marriage is about to happen, verses 7 and 8. And then lastly, because the marriage supper begins, in verse 9, it starts. I love what Spurgeon said about this portion of Scripture. Listen to this. All Christian duties should be done joyfully, but especially the work of praising the Lord. I have been in congregations where the spirit of the people has seemed to be so damp, so heavy, so dead, that we might have supposed that they were met to prepare their minds for a hanging rather than for a blessing, for blessing the ever-gracious God. <laughs> and haven't we all been in that kind of a setting before? I, I've been in settings where the way they sing the songs, you think it's a funeral dirge. And I'm sorry, my God's not dead. He's alive. And our worship ought to express that. And by the way, you don't have to have music to worship God. You worship Him from your heart. You can sing your own song to the Lord. Amen? And worship isn't singing. Did you listen now? Worship isn't singing. Singing is what we do as we worship. Singing is not worship. If that's true, then all the people out there who are gifted incredibly and have written songs but don't know who Jesus is, they're worshiping Jesus. They're not. It's not the song that's the worship. It's that you're using the song to elevate in your mind who Jesus is and you're worshiping Him. Worship starts inside. It doesn't start with some song. It doesn't start with some light show. It doesn't start with smoke, this haze in the room like you're going to a rock concert. It starts from your heart. Heaven is always heaven, Spurgeon said, and unspeakably full of blessedness. But even heaven has its holidays. Even bliss has its overflowings. And on that day, when the springtide of the infinite ocean of joy shall have come, what a measureless flood of delight shall overflow the souls of all glorified spirits. We do not know yet, beloved, of what happiness we are capable. Isn't that rich? Beautiful. But we don't have to wait till we go to heaven to start living it. You can experience it now. You should have the righteousness, the peace, and the joy of the Holy Spirit right now. The marriage of the Lamb. Who is the Messiah? That's a picture used frequently throughout the Scriptures. In the Old Testament, Israel is presented as God's wife. Did you know that? You remember that. He, who's, who is often unfaithful. God's constantly saying that. The book of Hosea is a vivid picture of the unfaithfulness of, the, of God's wife. Isaiah 54, verse 5, Ezekiel 16, Hosea 2, 19 through 20 are passages where we see the, 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 the uh, Israel as a picture of the bride of God. And in biblical times, a marriage involved two major events, the betrothal and the actual wedding. In the New Testament, it's the church that serves as the fiancé of the Lord. It's the church waiting for this day of marriage. 2 Corinthians 11.2 talks about it. You want to write it down? Ephesians 5.25-32 talks about it. In biblical times, we, we, we just need to understand that these were times of a separation during the betrothal 
where you would treat the person that you're ultimately going to have an intimate physical relationship with, but not during the betrothal. That's only after the wedding. But during that betrothal, all other aspects of a husband-wife relationship are being experienced. And there is this faithfulness to your future bride, your future husband, groom. And, and, and that's the picture that we have of God and the church. We are His church. And His bride, it says in verse 7 of our text, has made herself ready. So how do we make ourselves ready to be the bride of Christ? I'll tell you how you do it. You allow the Holy Spirit to do His work in you. That's the only way to be ready, is to let the Spirit of God have control of your being. No longer do you live, but Christ lives in you, right? The life you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God. That's what it's about. Ephesians 5.25, let me read it for you, verse through, 20, through verse 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. Who's doing the cleansing here of the bride? Jesus is. And then it says, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You cannot make yourself holy and without blemish. That is the work of Christ. He died on the cross for you. Your sins, past, present, future, have been forgiven. You are now a saint in His eyes. You are holy in God's eyes. Praise God. You're His church. Let me get a drink here. My cold coffee. I like iced coffee. And, 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 and so... Uh, in this perfect union with Jesus, His people will be clean and bright before Him. Clean. The Greek word is katharos. And it reflects purity, loyalty, faithfulness. It reflects the character of the new Jerusalem that's coming. Bright is another Greek word. Lampros is the color of radiant whiteness that depicts glorification, one of the scholars said. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Believers are created for divinely prepared good works. These righteous acts that you and I are to do are what fill the hope chest of the bride of Jesus. You know, Paul spoke of his desire that Christians would be presented before the Lord pure. In 2 Corinthians 11:2, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. See, that should be the desire of every Christian worker when you are ministering to someone, discipling them, mentoring them, that you want to present them. You want them to be presented before the Lord. It's not you that's cleansing them. It's the Holy Spirit in you that's teaching them. And by that, they are purified more and more each day. I'm not talking about getting a purity so you can be saved. That, that happened on the day of your salvation. I'm talking about being conformed more and more each day to the image of Jesus Christ. In Jewish culture, the marriage supper was the best banquet or the best party that anybody could attend. I mean, I'm telling you, a marriage was a big deal. And so you have a year of betrothal and then the wedding. And that wedding... The wedding uh, would, 
would happen uh, at the home of the groom. And that wedding was a week long at least, sometimes up to two weeks long. Remember the story of Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and he turned the water to wine because the wine was running out at a wedding feast. Well, they had been drinking wine all week. The rabbis actually put out a, uh, a decree that during the, the week of a wedding, during the feast, the party of a wedding, you didn't have to obey the Ten Commandments as long as that the reason you, whatever you were doing, was because of overwhelming joy for what God was doing in that couple, bringing them together. If you kept it in that context, then you didn't have to worry about drinking too much. That's what he's basically saying. I think that's playing with Scripture a little bit there, but, uh, but, but, uh, but they did have fun at weddings. And they did. When Jesus made the, the wine, they took a drink of it, and they said, whoa, hey, wait a minute. Most people save... Or they, get, you know, they save the best last. They're not going to give it to us right up front. Man, you are blowing us away here. This is some good stuff. Why? Because Jesus was at a feast, a wedding feast, celebration time. I'm telling you, the, the, in the final day, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb is the greatest feast that will ever take place. You and I will be there. Praise God. Verse 10, Then I fell down at His feet to worship Him, but he said to me, you must not do that. So who's he speaking of? He's referring to the angel that told him to write this down. And so now he's so overwhelmed by what he's seeing, the angel has to correct him. You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Don't worship an angel. My goodness, you know this, people who... They just think angels are everything. They got a little, they got a curio cabinet filled with angels, and they got angels here and angels there, and angels as if these little statues are watching over them. It's ridiculous. It's idol worship. Here you have an angel that's saying to John, and some of you are going, What in the world? John is one of the disciples. He's one of the great apostles. How in the world did he fall down in front of an angel? I'll tell you, if you were at that worship experience with everybody, the great multitude worshiping, and you saw that, you, you might be just out of your head enough that you fall down too. I, I don't know. I don't think John's messed up. I just think he got overwhelmed by what he was experiencing. And the angel said, hey, 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 whoa, we worship God. Get up. Don't worship me. I'm just delivering the message of God. Don't, don't worship the messenger. Amen? We need to be careful of that in churches. We need to be very careful that we not worship man, the pastor, the shepherd, or the elders who are the shepherds and pastors. Don't worship them. Show honor to them. Respect their leadership as they lead you in the Lord because one day they will have to give a greater account especially those who teach. Well, elders are teachers. And so it's an, it, you should honor them. You should pray for them. You should sh show respect to them, but don't worship them. They too are fallen creatures who have been saved by the mercy and the grace of God, just like you. And so we need to be careful there. Now, moving on, what time is it? Because I, I'm not sure we're going to get through this whole thing. I'm having so much fun with you. Uh, 
But I do like that angel's response, you know, when he said to him, hey, I'm a fellow servant with you. Isn't that great? The angel of the Lord who's coming from the presence of God, he says, but I'm just like you. I'm just a fellow servant. Now, we know that the Bible teaches that when we go to heaven, we will actually be over the angels. They are created beings just like you and I. Uh, so there are, there are important differences between humans and angels, but, but both of us are servants of the same Lord. He says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The spirit of prophecy always shows itself bearing witness to Jesus. We talked about that already. Verse 11, then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The only place in the entire Bible where Jesus is titled... His name, the Word of God. Wow. And those of us who have placed a greater emphasis on the red print and have belittled the Old Testament Scripture because we have the New Testament should now repent. Because Jesus, when He was on the earth, spoke the Old Testament constantly, referring to it. When it says that Jesus is the Word of God, it's not just referring to the red print in the New Testament. It's referring to every single verse of the entire Bible. Show respect and honor. Study the whole thing. Don't just pick and choose the parts that you like. And the armies of, of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Him on white horses. So He's coming out of heaven on a white horse, and he has an army following him out of heaven on white horses. And from his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now let's break this passage down. This is good from verse 11 through 16. Interestingly, according to Zechariah chapter 14, Zechariah 14 verses 3 and 4, when Jesus returns, He will come first to the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. And the prophecy in Isaiah is fulfilled in this vision of heaven. It says in Isaiah 64 verse 1 and 2, here's what it says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries. It's written on his, right here on his thigh, King of kings, Lord of lords. Why? Because when you're sitting on a horse, your thigh is exposed and they can see who he is and that the nations might tremble at your presence. <clears throat> I can promise you this, when Christ returns on a white horse, a white steed, and the multitude of, of soldiers come with Him on horses, 
That's going to be that's going to cause a little trembling on the earth. Those who are in battle against one another. Now, this prayer for deliverance will be on the lips of the Jewish people who survived the great tribulation. I'm talking about what uh, Isaiah 64, verse 1 and 2 tells us. What a change the tribulation is going to bring to the Jew who rejected Christ, mocked Him, laughed, had Him arrested, and plotted to put Him to death and succeeded in their eyes, not knowing that they fulfilled the ultimate plan of Father God. And in the end, He's going to return and it's going to be so overwhelming as they see that Jesus, the one they put on the cross, is the Messiah after all. That they are going to fall down and repent and worship Him. Many, many. Look what it says in Matthew 23, verse 39. Turn with me. I'll give you a second to get there. Matthew 23, 39. The Jews, as pretty much as a whole, are going to embrace the Messiah. Now we're talking, this, listen now, this is at the end of the tribulation. So they've gone through seven years of great torment and pain. Now they believe. Okay, Matthew 23, 39, Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. <clears throat> That's the picture of the Jews today. Verse 38, See, your house is left to you desolate. <clears throat> For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, here's what they're going to say when they see him again, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're going to see Him for who He is. Jesus prophesied that. That when I return, you're going to say, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Then I saw heaven open, verse 11, and behold, a white horse. Uh, among the Jews, most soldiers were foot soldiers. The Jews were not known for having horses. In fact, after David counted the size of his troops and then counted the troops of the enemy, uh, God told David, he, first of all, they, they lost the battle. They lost the battle because David put stock in his own thinking. He measured how big his army was against the other army and therefore we can't take them or we can take them. And God said, okay, you want to go ahead and be God? Go right ahead. And he walked right into a, a defeat. From that moment forward, the Jews stopped counting. It didn't matter how big the enemy was. We are going to go into battle with God. And our God is more than them. I don't care what their number is. <laughs> and so that's the story that you have here. You, you, you've got these you've got the Lord coming with, on a horse. But the Jews did not have horses. So you can imagine how overwhelmingly authoritative and powerful that picture is to a Jew who was told not to trust in the war horse. 
and yet now Christ is coming. And see, a white horse symbolizes triumph, victory. In Rome, when the general would come back from battle, having conquered another enemy and bringing the spoils with him, he would ride on a white horse. It symbolizes victory. Christ is coming back. Now get this, before the battle is even fought, he's already on a white horse. And by the way, there's not a place in all of Revelation that mentions at the Battle of Armageddon what exactly happened in the battle. There is no description of the battle. You know why? Because I don't believe there was a battle, army against God. I believe it was the Word of God that spoke and defeated the enemy. In fact, I'm going to show you that right here in the text in just a moment. The one sitting on, 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 on the horse is called Faithful and True. That's a glorious title that shows Jesus is the keeper of promises. And by the way, to His enemies, it's the key, He's the keeper of the promise of judgment. He's going to fulfill it. Verse 11, And in the righteousness He judges and makes war. When Jesus entered this world the first time, He was judged and condemned as the innocent God-man. When He returns a second time, He will come as judge and general, and He will lead His army to make war against the guilty. He was rejected the first time He came. Now they have rejected Him, and He will judge them for it. It's hard to believe that the world that rejected Jesus is going to reject Him a second time, but they will. Why? Because they have a depraved mind. They don't think straight. They don't think right. They can't have right thoughts in their mind. That's what happens when you write off God. Now you're left to your own demise. And in your flesh you have a depraved mind. And you can't think straight anymore. That's why this complacent, reasonable, religious view of Jesus is so deceptive. So many people revere a pale, insipid image of Christ who is this social justice warrior. That seems to be the Jesus that the churches today want, many churches. This social justice warrior for the people. He's on the same level as Mother Teresa and Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, he, he's idolized for the humble way that he served humanity. God help us. Therefore, we should carry his spirit forward, carry the attitude of Jesus what I remember a few years back here in town, the faith uh, section of the newspaper did an article on Christmas morning. And they went to, uh, he calls himself a pastor. Uh, and it was the pastor of the Unitarian Universalist Church. And they asked him, so what, what is the meaning of Christmas? And where does Jesus fit into Christmas? His response was, Jesus was a great prophet who did so many wonderful things. He helped humanity. Therefore, at Christmas time, we should remember all that He did, because He's gone now. And we should try to walk in the same spirit that He carried when He was on the earth. I wrote a response in the opinion section of the paper. I did not attack that 
pastor, but I did, did set the record straight on who Jesus is. Hallelujah. I'm telling you right now, that is the Jesus that the world has come to embrace. He was a great man, a good man. He did so many wonderful things for humanity and for mankind. He's one of the great people of all of history. One of the great? Are you kidding me? The second person of the Trinity? Get real. One scholar said, any view of God which eliminates his judgment and his hatred of sin in the interest of sentimental affection will find no support in the strong and virile realism of the apocalypse. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> You're not going to see that soft, mild-mannered, humble, humanity-driven Jesus. It breaks my heart to listen to sermons where these pastors take a passage of Scripture out of the life of Christ and they turn it into a social justice moment. Do they not understand that this whole social justice concept comes from the world? It does not come from the Bible. Let me tell you how socially just Jesus was. Judas, who was a corrupt-minded man, said to Jesus, you should have saved that perfume. We could have sold it and had money to give to the poor. Oh, what a wonderful humanity idea. Uh, Jesus said there will always be poor people. But the Son of Man is only here for this moment. She did the right thing. She worshipped me. This, I, we just need to be so careful, church, that we not get caught up in this nonsense. Listen, this is a Jesus we can't control in Revelation in our chapter here. This Jesus will not only demand our attention, He will demand our submission. Same class as Mother Teresa and Gandhi, please. They will fall before Him, both of them. And they will announce that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's probably good at this point to remember that this overwhelming display of judgment that Jesus is about to bring at the close of the tribulation only at the end of a long, comes only at the end of a long time of grace, patience, and mercy. Jesus is just in His judgment. He's just. What He's doing is right. Jesus has clearly displayed His nature of mercy, forgiveness, and grace to this fallen world. But that dispensation in this text, chapter 19, has ended. Now He comes with judgment, with justness, with holiness to execute the Father's plan. On the day of judgment, it's too late for men to expect the mercy of God. One scholar said it this way, There is nothing more inflexible than divine judgment where grace has been spurned. The scene of awful judgment which comes from this background is in flat contradiction of the modern point of view that God is dominated entirely by His attribute of love. And that is a popular doctrine today. It is a false doctrine. It's called universal salvation. That somehow, even those who are guilty and evil and wrong, they'll go to hell for a little while, and then the love of God will overcome His justice, and they'll end up in heaven for eternity. 
Jesus does everything when He comes in total righteousness. He's right to do it. There's no principle of ambition inside of Him. There's no lust for power or hunger for conquest and dominion. Christ is righteous in His principled attack on a rejecting world, and He executes it. Spurgeon said it this way, Jesus is the only king who always wars in this fashion. There have been brilliant exceptions to the general rule, but war is usually a deceitful, as deceitful as it is bloody, and the words of diplomatists are a mass of lies. <clears throat> it seems impossible that men should deliberate about peace and war without straightway forgetting the meaning of words and the bonds of honesty." War still seems to be a piece of business in which truth would be out of place. It's a matter of a cursed, uh, it's a matter so accursed that falsehood is there most at home, and righteousness quits the plain. But as for our king, it is in righteousness that he doth judge and make war. Christ's kingdom needs no deception. The plainest speech and the clearest truth. These are the weapons of our warfare. Isn't that good? Verse 12, His eyes are like a flame of fire. Why? Because He is discerning the secrets of all men. Nobody can get anything past Him. No secrets here that Christ does not see. He reads through us and knows us all the way to our inner being, to our soul. Verse 12, And on His head are many diadems, many crowns, the last time this world saw Jesus, He wore a crown of thorns. The next, next time, He's going to wear many crowns. That speaks of His royalty and His authority. This is God's expression of unlimited sovereignty that His Son carries. And He has a name written that no one knows but Himself. John could see the name, but he was unable to comprehend it. There are unfathomable mysteries in the Godhead that even glorified saints will be unable to grasp. And this is one of them. We don't know the name. It's not revealed. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Some scholars believe that blood is the blood of His own suffering as a reminder of what He went through, endured for us. Others believe it's the blood of His enemies. Either is, is possible. We don't really know for sure, but I tend to agree with John MacArthur. He said, Christ's blood spattered garments symbolize the great battles He has already fought against sin, against Satan and death, and been stained with the blood of His enemies. I like that. I think there's, that's very possible. Verse 13, and the, and the name by which He is called is the Word of God. So as the Word of God, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the express image of His person, and He is the final full revelation from God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following Him on white horses. Now, it's interesting. There's no mention of any kind of armor or weapons that these soldiers are bringing into this great battle. The only armor or weapon that they have is clothed in linen, white and clean. That's the only thing that they have, okay? From verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. 
and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The idea isn't that Jesus is going to have a sword sticking out of his mouth that he's going to wield and take out the enemy. It's also neither true that Jesus is going to somehow spit swords at people when he comes. His words are like a sword. His words do the battle. Okay? Uh, five times in the book of Revelation, John emphasizes that Jesus' sword comes out of His mouth. When it says He will rule them with a rod of iron, it means Jesus comes to rule and to reign in triumph. He comes as King of kings to displace every king reigning on this earth. He will be the only king. Let me explain. When Jesus returns, He's not going to try and change the culture where the world powers are just a little more Christianized. He's coming to totally, utterly dismantle all worldly powers. And He will be the only, only world power. Okay? Verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Interesting there where you and I will be attending the marriage supper of the Lamb because we were invited and we, res and we responded with an RSVP through our salvation. Amen? Amen? At the very end, those who rejected that wonderful marriage supper of the Lamb will now be invited into the feast of the fowl where the birds of the air, all types of birds, will eat their flesh. There are four different suppers that are described in the Bible. The first is the Supper of Salvation. That's alluded to in Jesus' parable of the Great Banquet in Luke 14. The second is the Lord's Supper. That's a commemoration of Jesus' sacrifice, right? We celebrate that. We practice that Lord's Supper regularly. The Marriage Supper of the Lamb is the supper that we're reading about here in Revelation 19. And then there's the Supper of the Great God. If you reject the first supper, the second supper will mean nothing to you. Then you will not be present at the third supper, but you will be present at the fourth supper. By rejecting the first supper, you just made an RSVP for the final supper, the Feast of the Fowl. My goodness, if you reject God, then God rejects you. Verse 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Armies are going to gather together. Listen, many scholars believe the armies did not come together to battle God. They are coming together to battle one another. The greatest battle in the earth's history will happen on the field of Megiddo at the Battle of Armageddon. It's the greatest battle while they are battling one another in this all-out world war like none other, then Jesus on His white steed and His army on white horses, and you and I are going to come with Him out of the heavens. And these who are battling on the field will then turn their focus 
against God. They don't want God to touch down on earth. And they turn everything towards God. And that's where they will be completely, utterly defeated, annihilated by Jesus Christ, by the words that come out of His mouth. You can chalk it up as an incurably insanity of sin. That's the only reason why somebody would possibly turn and battle against God directly. You're not in your right mind. And that's where the world will be. I think people are there today. Many people are there today. Please notice, John doesn't write any description about a battle. Again, because it's inside, it's, this, this battle is entirely one-sided. Jesus wins. He comes on a white steed. Already before the battle takes place, he's showing victory. Verse 20, And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who was in the presence in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two th were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So you talk about a stinky pit, and it is the lake of fire. By the way, whenever the Bible speaks of the lake of fire, that is the eternal hell. Now what we see is in this text, we'll see the abyss spoken of next chapter. That Satan is not going to be thrown initially into the lake of fire. He will be put in, uh, in, in chains for a thousand years in the abyss because he's going to come back. God's going to release him a thousand years later after the thousand year reign of Christ. Those who were born from those who were saved during the tribulation, many will not serve the Lord. Some will fake it and God will release Satan to dupe them and deceive them and they will go to him. And that's how... God will know the difference. He already knows because He has foreknowledge, but that's how it will be revealed that there are those on the earth at the end of the thousand years who did not serve the Lord. And then at that time, Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity. But here we see that the beast, the false prophet, uh, they're, they're put into this, this lake of fire. In other words, they're done. They had their moment. It was all ordered up by God. He allowed it to happen for a purpose. And now your purpose has been served. You're done. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So the beast and the false prophet received special treatment. They're cast alive into the lake of fire before the great white throne of judgment even holds court. The lake of fire is actual hell, and that's where they're at to this day. They're alive there, and they are suffering there for all eternity. Well, we just finished chapter 19. Much to think about, but also much to give praise to God for, that our God reigns. Amen? If you take anything out of this tonight, I pray that when you come to church Sunday, that you give the Lord a shout. Sing louder than you've ever sung, giving praise to God for your salvation and for the plan that He has executed to perfection from the very beginning of time, and that you are part of His wonderful, marvelous, glorious plan. Amen? Isn't that great? Father, we thank you tonight. We pray that you would now allow each of us to 
make it home safely as we are alert and prepared to drive. And I pray, Lord, those who could not be with us, that tonight you would bless them for listening in. And those who were working and were unable to be part, I pray, Lord, that you would just allow them to play back the videotape or the, uh, the live stream of this, play it back as it's recorded, and may they be able to receive the same encouragement and edification that we've received by the Word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, church.